Marketing, symbols, all of that stuff is really important because it communicates a bit of who you are, it communicates your ethos, what you stand for, what you're about. And as we think about the cross, which is the symbol of the Christian faith, it could seem like a very strange emblem, if you like, a very strange logo. You might wonder maybe, why did God not get a better marketing team to put that one together? The crucifixion was the worst kind of death you could be given, you know, the most brutal, uh, torturous death given to criminals. It was so bad that it was banned. Obviously, we don't do it today, do we? And so, as we look at the cross, the very thing that God uses to draw people to himself, we might ask tonight, how is there any wisdom in the cross? And that is what the passage that we're about to look at talks about tonight, the wisdom of the cross. Because the cross is at the heart of our faith. The cross is at the heart of what we believe. Everything points back to the cross. That's what Paul keeps telling us in this letter to the church in Corinth. So as we unpack this passage tonight, there's three questions that uh, we're going to look at. For the church in Corinth, what were they looking for? What did they see and what did they miss? And so we're going to ask ourselves those questions as well. What are we looking for? What do we see and what might we miss? So let's, let's open uh, the word of God together. It will come on the screen if you've got it in front of you. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And we're going to go from verse 18 through to verse 5 of chapter 2. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who's become for us wisdom from God that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it's written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I didn't come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. 
So I was a teacher, oh, I better not touch this, it'll fall. I was a teacher for a while, so in the world of education, one of the things that shocked me very early into my kind of teacher training was the amount of acronyms there are in the world of education. So many acronyms. I mean, honestly, there's hundreds of them. You teach children who have SEN or EAL or qualify for S. Oh, I can never say this, FSM, free school meals. You, you fill out IPPs for people. Honestly, it goes on and on. There are hundreds of acronyms in the world of education. But here's one that, as a teacher, you use quite a lot, and it's this, WILF, what I'm looking for. So you say that to pupils. You know, you set them a task. This is what you need to do. This is what I'm looking for, WILF. And you'll write it on the board, WILF. I'm looking for A, B, and C, and that's how you're successful in the task. What am I looking for? The people in Corinth that Paul was writing to, they were looking for truth. They were searching for truth. They were searching for God, really, trying to get to the bottom of what is this whole God thing all about. And when we're searching for truth, when we're searching for God, you know, we, do, we bring our own perspective to that. You, know, you might sort of think, well, surely truth is truth. But actually, when we look for truth, we're looking through the lens of what we already know. We're looking through a lens that's um, affected by the way we were brought up, or um, the things that we're passionate about, perhaps, or our culture. And so for the Jews and the Greeks, they measured truth by the world around them, by what they knew, what their culture told them was important. So verse 22 says this, the Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. The Jews were demanding signs. If I want to know what God is like, if I want to know more of God, if I want to get to the bottom of what truth is, then I want a sign. And we see that in the life of Jesus, don't we? All the time, the Jewish people and the Jewish leaders were coming up to him and saying, well, if you're who you claim you are, then why don't you prove it? Why don't you do something? Show us a sign. And part of me sort of thinks, well, surely that's fair enough. You know, if Jesus was God and he had all this power, then he easily could show them a sign. He could do anything. He has all the power uh, available to him. He could prove himself. He could show them a sign. Surely that's a fair enough thing to demand from Jesus, is it not? A sign, a demonstration of power. We believe in a powerful God. God is a God of power. And one of the things that actually I really like about this passage, I don't know if you noticed it, is that it's bookended with uh, the word power. So the first verse we read, verse 18, said that the message of the cross is the power of God. And then the last verse that we read, it said, my message was not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. So God is powerful. We believe in a God who demonstrates his power. And one of the things I've been really excited to hear about recently in our church is uh, stories of God at work in lifestyle, our, our Monday night um, gateway service. They have been praying for each other and praying specifically for healing. And God has been at work there. People saying, you know what, I came last week and I had a sore tooth and you guys prayed for me and God healed that. Or I had a sore shoulder and you prayed for me and God's, God's taken that away. I love that kind of thing. We know that God is a powerful God, not just a God of power from the old days, from the Bible stories that we read about, but he is a God of power today. But sometimes we can demand you know, that God move in power. We can demand that he show us a sign as if it's some kind of proof for his existence or his love for us. You know, you might hear people say things like, well, I would believe in God if he did X, Y, or Z 
for me. You know, or Lord, if you really loved me, surely, surely you would do this one thing to show me that you love me. You know, and I know people, and you probably do as well, who have walked away from God because of disappointment, because he hasn't seemed to show his power in the way that they hoped for. He hasn't answered a prayer that they've been persistently praying. People who've walked away because God hasn't given them the sign, if you like, that they've been asking for. You know, I would believe in God if only. I just wonder, would we? Even if he did that, would we still believe in him? You know, when I look at the Gospels, there's this uh, story in John chapter 6 where the people came to Jesus and they were like, look, Jesus, if you're really God, give us a sign, show us, because you know what? The people before us, our forefathers, our ancestors, they were pretty cool with that sort of thing. I don't know if you remember Moses, but when we were in the desert and we had nothing to eat, Moses, he came up trumps and he provided manna from heaven for us to eat. Moses was pretty cool. So what are you going to do, Jesus? And Jesus had to remind them, hang on a minute, that wasn't Moses that did that. That was God. God provided your bread. And I, Jesus, I am the bread of life. And they were like, yeah, whatever, Jesus, anyway, what sign are you going to show us? How are you going to prove that you're God? And he says, I am the bread of life. He said, you have seen me, and still you don't believe. Because God gave them the most perfect sign in the person of Jesus the bread of life, but they still didn't get it. It wasn't enough. You know, God does move in power. I totally believe that. I know that to be true in my own life. I'm sure many of us here can testify to that. God does move in power. God does do things to show us that he is alive and at work in our lives. He gives us ways to engage with him. We know he is real, but If our faith becomes dependent on whether God does or doesn't do those things for us that we expect or that we demand or that we want, you know, we might be disappointed when we come to the message of the cross. Because if we were asking God for a sign of power, why would we, who would ever choose the cross? Who would choose the cross? If our faith is shaken when we don't get what we want or what we expect, then maybe we're looking for the wrong thing, you know? Maybe we're looking for the signs and the miracles and God's demonstrations of power when actually we need to just look at the cross. If you want to know if God loves you, look at the cross. That is a sign. If you want to see God's power, look at the cross. The Jews were demanding signs, it says, and the Greeks were looking for wisdom. They were looking for knowledge. That was one thing they were famous for. Those old Greeks, they were known for being lovers of knowledge, for um, philosophy, for learning. And so for them, when they're trying to understand God, for them, it's not about signs and wonders and miracles and all the fancy stuff. They just want concrete facts. They want logic. They want to be able to make sense of God. You know, they're not bothered about all the whiz-bang miracles. They just want facts. And again, part of me thinks, surely that's fair enough. Surely God should be knowable. Surely we should be able to use the brains that he gave us to, to get our minds around who he is and to understand him, to wrestle with our faith. Surely that's all right, because there are some things in life that are facts. One plus one is two. There are 24 hours in a day. What goes up must come down, and all such things like this. But there are some things in life that we will never understand, and that is true of God. There are some parts of God that we will never 
truly understand. With all the knowledge of the world, of the world we can never get our heads around truly who God is. When I was 17, I was just beginning in my journey of leading worship. My church were very gracious to me. I probably wasn't very good at leading worship, but they were like, oh, let's give the young ones a, a go at leading worship. And I remember one particular evening, we had a visiting team come to our church for the weekend, and they were talking about the Holy Spirit. They had been talking about healing, um, and it had been, been a lovely weekend with the Lord. And um, after our time of worship, this lady, who I didn't know from the visiting team, wanted to come and pray with me, so she did. And there I was, sat in you know, the prayer position, eyes closed, hands out. And she said to me, oh, what's that on your hands? So I opened my eyes and I had a look and I couldn't see anything. And I thought, well, this is awkward. <laughs> this lady's balmy. There is nothing in my hands. What is she talking about? And then I promise you, as I looked in the palm of my hands, before my eyes, flakes of what appeared to be like gold appeared on my hands. And all of a sudden, they were all on my shoulders, and they were in my hair, and they were everywhere. And this lady was saying to me, oh, I don't know what this is. I've never seen this before. Come and look at this. And then she told me, why don't you go and pray for people? This is obviously God blessing you in some way. Go and pray for other people. So there I was, 17-year-old me, not having a clue what was going on, just, Lord, just bless this person, just bless this person. And as we all prayed, this gold dust just appeared everywhere all up upon every person that was part of that time of prayer. And it was all over the floor of our church. And the stories go that people were going back to their homes, telling their families, you'll never guess what happened at church tonight. And as they spoke about it at home, that gold dust was appearing at home in their houses. Did I understand what that was about? Not at all. Could I find a scripture that said... When thou prayest, gold dust shall falleth from heaven. Of course not. But did I believe it was God? I absolutely did. For whatever reason, God chose to just remind me that he is God, to say hello. You know, there's nothing wrong with pursuing knowledge. I really believe that. It's good to study. It's good to use our brains. And, you know, I love theology and, and all of that kind of stuff. There's nothing wrong with that. But we have to be really careful because there's a danger that we pursue knowledge of God over the presence of God. You know, that we try and put God into this tidy box where we think, I understand God. This is the kind of thing God would do, and this is the kind of thing that God definitely wouldn't do. And if we fall into that trap, we can become um, hardened to what the Holy Spirit might want to do. Or we can become cynical of people who appear to experience God in ways that, that we just don't understand. You know, I remember telling a Christian teacher in my school on the Monday morning after that gold dust evening, telling her what had happened. And she was a Christian lady, and she just said to me outright, I don't believe you. God wouldn't do that. That's not scriptural. But what was that all about? I wasn't lying. God did that. We had to hoover it up. I have a piece of it still stuck inside the front cover of my Bible today. I think in this passage, part of what Paul is saying, you know, is that we can subject God to our own reasoning, to our understanding, but when we do that, it means that we're putting an awful lot of faith in our own brains, our own minds, on our own intellect. That means that we assume that we know it all, you know, that we can make God sit within the confines of our own understanding. And I don't know about you, but 
I know there's a lot of stuff that I don't know. I don't know at all. And just because stuff doesn't make sense to me, I haven't read about gold dust anywhere in the Bible, just because things don't make sense to me always doesn't mean that they don't make sense to God. Near the cross, it didn't make sense to the Greeks and the Jews because it didn't fit with their understanding of what they thought God might be, of what they thought wisdom or power might look like. And will I... Will we give up on God when he doesn't do things in the way that we expect? Whether that's he's not showing his power in the way that I would like or I've just got these questions that I can't seem to get answers for. You know, the Jews were looking for signs. The Greeks were looking for wisdom. What are you looking for? When you look at the cross, what is it that you're looking for in Jesus? Is it his power? Or are you living with the disappointment that you feel like he hasn't shown his power? in the way that you'd want to. Or maybe you're doubting that he doesn't have any power at all. Or is it that you've got those questions and you, can't, you just can't get the answers that you want? What is it that you're looking for? Who is familiar with the five love languages? Anyone heard of the love languages? Yeah? So the idea behind this, I think, I think you could call it a theory, is that uh, there are five ways of uh, of expressing love, okay? There are five love languages, and they are touch, you know, affection. They are quality time, spending quality time with your partner or, or whoever it is you're referring to, your child or your friend. Um, acts of service, doing stuff for people. Words of affirmation, you're great, you're beautiful, well done. Gifts, giving presents, okay? They're the five love languages, and the idea is that, although we're probably a mix of all five of those love languages, that each one of us has got a primary love language, and the way that you identify what yours is, is by just thinking about, well, how, how do I treat the people that I love? You know, so if I love to buy people gifts, you know, that, then probably that's my love language. Uh, you know, I express love through gifts, and probably I feel loved when I receive gifts. But what is interesting about this whole love languages thing is that two people can have very different love languages. And so you can imagine, therefore, a conversation that might go like this. Darling, why don't you show me more that you love me? What? But I cook for you, and I keep the house clean for you, and I filled your car with petrol, and I helped you with that project, and I mowed the lawn, and I fixed your phone, and I did all this stuff for you. How could you possibly think that I don't love you? Because that person's love language was acts of service, doing stuff to show that they love their partner. And yet the partner couldn't understand it because they have a different perspective on what love looks like. They have a different perspective on what love look like, looks like. And actually what they probably were asking was more along the lines of, oh, why don't you buy me more presents? Or, you know, why do you never put your arm around me in public? Or, I don't know, um, how come you never tell me how beautiful I am. They have a different perspective on what love looks like. And the truth is, we don't always see things with the same perspective as God. We don't always have his perspective on things either. What do you see when you look at the cross? Verse 23 says that the message of the cross is a stumbling block. It is foolishness. It's a stumbling block. Looking at the cross is a stumbling block for people's faith. They just can't get past it. 
It trips them up, it stops them in their tracks. And in fact, the Greek word for stumbling block is better translated to mean scandal. That the idea of the cross, of Jesus dying on the cross was a scandal, it was offensive. Because if you were a Jew, you had grown up waiting for the Messiah, waiting, knowing that there was gonna be at some point a Messiah that would come and he would rescue Israel. He would defeat Israel's enemies. Not that he would be defeated, not that he would die a criminal's death because that is a scandal. You know, it's almost like an oxymoron. The Messiah has died. It's like fried ice. It doesn't make sense, you know, that the Messiah would die on a cross. You know, yeah, there he is. There's your Messiah, the one that's hanging on the cross. That was offensive to them. That was a stumbling block for their faith. And uh, the Jewish people, they grew up, they knew the scriptures. And there's a verse back from Deuteronomy uh, chapter 21, verse 23, where it says, anyone who hangs on a tree is under God's curse. And so not only does this Messiah seem to be weak and a failure, but he is hanging on a tree and it appears that he is cursed. Not just a failure, but a curse. And so it was utterly, utterly baffling to them. How could the cross make any sense whatsoever? And so to the Greeks, they didn't have the baggage of like having spent their lives expecting a Messiah, but they were clever people who loved to learn, who loved concrete facts and all that I said earlier on. To them, they just thought, that's foolish, that's just stupid. What a weird idea to be promoting that the savior of the world would die on a cross. That's just foolishness. And we, we think of the word foolishness, it sounds kind of funny, doesn't it? It sort of seems like a bit of a slapstick word the cross is foolishness, but the translation is better, uh, is more like the word insanity. To believe in the cross is insane. It's moronic. You know, we probably don't even understand today how just how offensive that idea was to those people in the first century. Do you know, there's a piece of really early graffiti um, in, on a wall outside Rome called, and I don't know if I'm going to say this right, called the Aleximenos Graffito Sculpture. And it's basically a piece of graffiti depicting a man worshipping another man on the cross. But this man on the cross, he was half man and he had a donkey's head. And this was a picture that was basically mocking Christians. The idea that you would worship a saviour who died on the cross is absolutely ludicrous. Ridiculous and ludicrous. I've just made up a new word there. Lucrudius. Uh, the idea that you would worship a saviour on the cross is just foolishness. And I, I, you know, I think there are people today who, who don't know Jesus as their saviour and they look at the cross and they think the same thing. It is a strange idea. Why would God have the cross as his symbol? Why didn't God get better marketing team? It doesn't make sense. So it's like this nice fairy tale that you heard growing up about how there was this Jesus that died on the cross so you could be forgiven and it, it's just a story. It's not true. And for some people, I think that they like the idea of believing in God, but they can't get past this weird idea of the king on the cross because it's too far-fetched. And I wonder for some of us who have been Christians for a long time, whether the cross has become a stumbling block to us too. I remember the first time that I tried a Big Mac, amazing. 
I remember the first time I realized that peanut butter and jam made a fantastic combination. I remember the first time I realized how comfortable it was to wear a onesie around the house. And I remember the first time that it hit home for me, having grown up in the church, the first time I really realized what Jesus' death meant to me. That it wasn't just a story, but that his death meant that I was forgiven. That his death meant actually I could have a relationship with God that I could have eternal life. And I remember those first days after I'd been filled with the Holy Spirit where I just felt like, Lord, I will never uh, disobey you again. Lord, I will never put anything in front of you ever again. You will always be the first thing on my lips. I will never tire of praising you, God. And yet, the truth is that some days the cross means very little to me in reality. Perhaps it is a stumbling block to me in the same way that I trip over my coffee table because it's part of the furniture. It's familiar. You know, it's just there. I throw my clothes on it at the end of the day. Sometimes I even walk around it just so I can get on with my life. Has the cross become too familiar for me? Martin Luther famously said these words. He said, I preach the gospel to myself every day because every day I forget it. I preach the gospel to myself every day because every day I forget it. And I could do with taking a leaf out of his book, preaching the gospel to myself every day, reminding myself every day of the power of the cross. You know, it says in verse 18 that the cross is the power of God. Not that the cross is um, telling us about the power of God or some kind of information or advice about the power of God, but the cross is the power of God. And so every day I need to remind myself of that, where I've made the cross just become this like addition to my life, this thing that I just, yeah, it's there, but I don't pay attention to it. I wear it around my neck. The cross is the power of Christ, it's the power, sorry, the power of God. And it's the cross that saves me. I need to remember that. So for the Jews and the Greeks, they were looking for signs, they were looking for wisdoms, and what they saw was foolishness and was a stumbling block. What do you see when you look at Jesus? Do you see, that's just weird, I don't understand that. Or do you see part of the furniture or do you see the power of God? What do you see? So finally, what might we miss? What might we miss? That's hard to say. Did I say that right? I feel like I maybe said that the wrong way around. Spoonerisms. What might we miss when we look at the cross? The cross, it challenges um, our idea of our categories of what we think power is, what we think wisdom really looks like. There's this story from World War II. I wasn't there. I'm not that old, but people tell me this is what happened. That the German army, um, they had fortresses all across northern France, that it looked impenetrable. And the Allied forces were looking, how can we get through there? How can we get through to liberate France and end the war? And so they wanted to plan an attack on Normandy to get through, but they hatched this brilliant plan to convince the German army that actually what they were going to do was attack Calais, which was 150 miles away. And so the way that they wanted to convince the Germans of this was, this is brilliant, 
they got fake tanks. They got hundreds of inflatable tanks and put them on the fields opposite Calais. I think that is hilarious. There's pictures of soldiers carrying tanks on their shoulders, these blow-up tanks. What would have happened if there was like a windy day and all these tanks suddenly like lifted up and blew in the air? What would have happened? But anyway, they put these thousands of inflatable tanks on the fields opposite Calais. And the, the German planes would have flown over and been like, oh, oh we know what they're, they're going to attack Calais. Okay. You know, even they broadcast fake um, broadcasts to suggest the same thing, to make them believe that there was going to be an attack on Calais. And so the Germans thought that they had the power and they thought that they had the knowledge and the wisdom and all the strategy to make this attack on Calais. And they focused all their troops there. But then they were unprepared when actually we attacked Normandy. They identified what they thought was power and wisdom, and they were so focused on it that they were oblivious to the fact that war was coming from a different angle. We might think we know what power looks like. We might think we know what, what wisdom is. But God turns that on its head at the cross. You know, if I was God, I probably would have done the whole Jesus Messiah thing a bit differently. I mean, for starters, I'm not sure that if I wanted to save the whole of mankind, that I would have done it starting with a baby. But if I had, you know, I think I would have gone for the whole like royal baby thing and it would have been the best hospital, the best healthcare, and probably all the paparazzi would have been there, just like we've seen in the news in the last few weeks. But if I had of you know, had my way. I wouldn't have chosen to go down the baby route. I would have had a fully grown adult probably descend from the clouds with a booming voice, you know, saying, I am here to save you. And it would have been flashy. And my Jesus would have put on big events and big rallies and there'd have been lights and smoke machines. And it would have been sign up here to follow Jesus or vote for JC. You know, I have my ideas of what I think that whole thing should look like, how I think Jesus should look how I think power looks, what I think wisdom looks like. God turns it on his head and he, th he says to us, you think you know what wisdom is? You think you know what power looks like? Verse 25 says, the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is still stronger than human strength. In the cross, God redefines power. He redefines wisdom. God does things differently. And you know what? The power of the cross isn't demonstrated in spite of the fact that it looks weak and it looks foolish. It's actually the power exactly because it looks foolish and because it looks weak. Remember that verse in Deuteronomy about the person on the tree being cursed? Well, that was exactly the point, you know, that the people would look at Jesus and say, that cannot be true. That cannot be true, but that's exactly true. Galatians 3 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. It wasn't weakness, foolishness, failure. It was God's greatest victory. Jesus had to be cursed so that we who live in a cursed world can be made free. He had to be crushed and broken so that those of us who feel broken can be made whole. He had to be humiliated so we could find dignity. He had to be separated from his father so we could be reunited with our father. And he had to face death so that we could find life. It's all upside down. God just turns it all on its head. You know, unlike those German troops, we don't want to be distracted by other stuff in life and miss out 
on the power of the cross and miss out on that freedom, that relationship with the Father, that dignity, the true life. You know, we can complicate our faith, can't we? We can dress it up, make it look all glitzy and glamorous, or we can try and explain it to other people in a way that makes it seem less foolish. But it's actually quite simple. Jesus died on the cross. He didn't deserve to, but he did it so that our sins were forgiven, so that we could be free, so that we could have eternal life, we could know God for ourselves. You know, this week I've had a, um, a sore neck, and so for a few days I was kind of a bit like this. I felt like I had limited movement, limited vision, and I felt a bit like this morning as I was thinking through this talk that God was saying, some of us view God like that, like we can only see so much. You know, and this evening I think God's saying, D don't miss out. Take, I can't do it because my neck's still sore. Take a proper look around. See what God has to offer. I'm not saying that like a marketing plan. But there is so much more to God than we understand. And sometimes we limit him. And we, then we miss out. You know, I stand here today as someone who knows the power of the cross, who knows the power of God in her life. And I'm sure that is your story too. Many of you here tonight, you know, I know it's the power of the cross that has brought me to where I am today. It's the cross that has brought me forgiveness. It is the cross that brings me hope. It is the cross that gives me a fresh start every day. It is the cross that brings me to my Father. And it is the cross that is the power of God. Why don't we stand? We're going we're gonna to pray together.